Um, I haven't preached here for a while. Most of my preaching is outside of here for other ministries other than when I've done weddings here. And so I'm, I'm excited to be back up here. I'm not on staff here, but I have pastoral responsibilities, and I like them. And I like kind of the mixture of what I do. It's nice to not have to travel very far to come to preach. And so what I want you to do is open your Bibles to James 4. We've been doing a series here from the book of James, the letter of James, the epistle of James. And, and I want to remind us of something, is that this year is a year for maturity. We've got to grow up. We've got to let our roots grow deep. And I've known Christians 40 years in Christ that are still babes. They can't give up this. They can't give up this, that. It just seems like there's endless things that they can't do. This is a year for us to grow up. And part of my calling, the pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist, apostle, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry because there's things that we're called to do. Now, maturity, depending on how you hear that, can be an offensive word or an encouraging word. We have trees that we take time to prune and we take time to, to change and you work in your gardens and you do all these things. As a coach, I've come alongside of people to try to steer out things that were not working well. That's maturity. You hear that with the filter of the heart of God, the maturity is always a good thing. How many here want to be just like you were 20 years ago? In, in immaturity. None of us want to be there. We want to be mature. We all want to reflect Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Well, this passage in James has very strong words. 20 years ago, I'd have loved to have this one. I mean, I loved, I was used to be introduced, and they told people, to, one way or the other, you're going to be changed. Either it's going to be the Holy Spirit or Tom. And I love these passages. But as God has continued to work sonship into my heart and understanding the Father's love, this is really hard words. And so here's what I need you to do. How many like taking roller coaster rides? Any kind of things where you lock in there and wrote, this is what you'll see on most signs on any of these kind of rides. It says this, remain in the ride until it comes to a full and complete stop at the unloading point of the ride. If the stop, if the ride or, the, or the whatever you're on stops temporarily due to mechanical failure or other reasons, stay seated and wait for the ride to start again or for the operator for further instructions. Strong words today, but listen, I'm convinced of this, that God wants to give hope and wants to bring encouragement and wants to bring the tree of life today. But here's what we're going to need to do. We're going to go and we're going to put our sides in. We're going to let the operator of the Holy Spirit strap us in this thing, keep our hands inside there, and I promise you this, no one will get hurt. Can I get an amen? amen. Or an oh me? I believe with all my heart that God wants to open up this word today and to show us them because I was reading this thing. I've been chewing on it for a few weeks, and I kept thinking, give me the next few verses. Give me the next section. Give me something else in James. But then I go and say, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. When he comes, he comes to remind us of what he already told us. So if he comes along and says, don't do something, he's already showed us and convicted us in our heart, and he's just reminding us because that's the passionate heart of the Father. But when we, let the, when we let this thing filter through the, through the eyes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we start making a to-do list of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And no one wants those. You know why? Because we already had a bad enough week, and we did our best, and yet the end result, if we're honest with you, we feel sometimes when we come to church further away from God than when we left the service. Is that not right? So we don't need a passage like this to condemn us and to, to, to bring this kind of conviction that's not of God. On the other hand, if it's a year to mature, oh, God, teach us, train us, 
equip us. Some of the best coaches I've ever had were the ones that were the hardest on me because they were trying to draw out the athlete that was in there. The best teachers I had were the hardest ones on because they were trying to draw out whatever gifts are in there. So in the hands of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced of this, that this passage, when seen through his lenses, can be one of those verses of saying, oh, I never saw the Father before. All right? So, Father, as we spend time reading in your word today, we place ourselves under the control of the Holy Spirit. We choose to surrender the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We choose to put us in a position of saying we want to be taught by you. Father, we know that you always are thinking of our good. You always have done such great things. As, as Hannah shared earlier, why were you yet sinners? You died for us. When we didn't even know who you are, you, you chose to pay the price for us. You sought us. You pursued us. You're the one who initiated this relationship. And so, Father, you don't let anything come into our lives except that which you want to do because you want to equip us and train us and to transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. You said we're new creation. The old have gone away. So we pray against condemnation. We pray against judgment. We pray against anything the enemy would try to do to us. Holy Spirit, we want your equipping, your training. And all God's people said, are you ready? All right, James 4. We're going to go through 1 through 12. I'm going to read it through in the message version. I love the way he kind of teaches us. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and you fight for it deep and inside yourself. You lust for what you don't have and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and you're willing to risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't have just think of asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you'd be, no, you'd be asking for something you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want to do is get your way, you're flirting with the world every chance you get, and you end up enemies of God in his way. Do you suppose that God doesn't care? The proverb says he's a fiercely jealous lover, and what he gives in love is far better than anything you'll ever find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful, proudful, and that God gives grace to the willing, humble. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud, no to the devil, and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God, and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit the bottom. Cry your eyes out. The fun and the games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you're going to get back on your feet. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's words, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You are supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? The title of my message today is Passionate Grace. And as I look at this, my, my first reaction is this. Why is James yelling at me? Ah, we were doing pretty good about this. We were learning about wisdom. We were learning about truth. We were learning some insights. God was teaching us stuff. Some of it was a little hard. We, we uncinched our belts at times, and other times we tightened it up. We wanted to know what's going on, and, and now James is yelling at me, and I don't get it. That's the first question I said as I started studying this. Why is James yelling at us? Verse 2, he says we lust. He says we murder. He says we covet. He says we start wars. He says it's our, it's our entire fault that God doesn't answer our prayers because we don't ask. Hey, James, I did pray. James, I did ask. 
And I don't know why God has an answer, so why is James yelling? Why is he so mad right now? I don't get it. In verse 3, he says, you ask and then you don't receive because your motives are wrong. <laughs> he accuses me of spending it on my own pleasure. And if that's not bad enough, verse 4, he calls me an adulterer or an adulteress. James, what are you talking about? And then he says, we're enemies of God. Then in verse 7 to 10, he continues his ramp. He says, his rant, he says, we need to submit, we need to resist, we need to clean my hands, and he calls us sinners. He says, purify your heart, you double-minded. He says, lament and warm, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, and humble yourself. You see why I said we need to keep our hands inside the right? Because I think the Holy Spirit wants to take us somewhere. All scripture is given for profit for edification, for reproof, for instruction, that we be thoroughly changed, like go and I say, what is going on here? Why is he yelling at me? And I wait, and I listen to the Holy Spirit as he answers me. My second question is, ever wonder this as you read this? You just read it this morning. Who had the bright idea to put this in the Bible? I mean, think about it. As they were assembling the 66 books that made up the Bible, they had lots of other Bible, other verses, other passages, other letters, other epistles, other books. Why did they stick this one in here? This passage, this section, they could have cut it out and none of us would have ever known. But somehow someone had the bright idea to say, this one should be going on there. I already feel bad enough about myself. Why would we read this in church? I already get enough from the world. Why would I need to read this? Why would I say this? I wondered if somebody just says, hey, I know what, this is a great letter. I just read this great letter. I got to read it in church. What were they thinking? What was the point for it? Personally, I would have put down the letter and said, I'll wait for the next one to come, since James was kind of in the beginning of all these epistles. I'll wait for the next one. Thank you very much. My third thought after I read is, why is James so passionate? You picked this up? This isn't light words. These are heavy words, hard words, harsh words. Why is he so passionate? Why is he so seemingly bent against my destruction and my judgment? Was this thing written for some bony preacher who had an axe to grind and point his finger on the corner of Lake Street and telling everybody they're going to hell? Seemingly, that's what it seems like. So why is he so passionate? Is James pulling rank on all of us and saying, hey, you know I can say this? My half-brother is Jesus. In fact, ask me who my mom is. Yeah, it's Mary. Same Mary? Yep, same one you're thinking of. So I can say whatever I want. That's what it can seem like he's doing. And I said, Holy Spirit, where's the grace of God in this? Where's the mercy of God? Where is the compassion? Where is the wooing? Where is the passion that you have for me as I read this scripture? If all scripture is to change me and to transform me into your image and likeness, and all scripture reveals the love of God from Genesis to Revelation, where is the love? It just seems like we're off the track here. Does anyone else agree with me? It seems angry. It seems judgmental. It seems critical. Turn your laughter into mourning. Man, I fought with depression for 45 years, Pastor Tom, and I'm finally joyful. Now I'm supposed to be mournful? Are you kidding me? I pray for wrong motives. I pray for my sister who had cancer and she died. I don't need this stuff. I'll go drive up and down Summit Avenue, Tom. I, I'll go look at the leaves. I'll go do something else. I'll go sit in Starbucks coffee where they don't judge me. I don't need this on a Sunday morning. Why are you so passionate, James? Why are you so mad? Why are you yelling? Why was this included in the scriptures, I said? Holy Spirit, what are you doing in our lives? Or could there be another reason why it's in here? Could it be we filtered 
passages like this with the wrong lenses, the wrong lenses of judgment and condemnation and shame and criticism and all the stuff that's there. If we're going to mature, some of those lenses still have to come off. Because I'm telling you this, sometimes we still see scriptures and we don't see the love of the Father. Do you know what the purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ was for? And everyone says, pay for my sins. Yeah, that's what the, the ultimate purpose was. But the ultimate, ultimate purpose was one thing, to get us back to the relationship with the Father that was lost in the Garden of Eden when we chose to say, I don't want to go your way. So if all scripture is to lead us back to him, then this passage, if we got the wrong lens, if all we hear is the judgmental and the damnation of the Father heart of God through there. And if we're going to grow up, sometimes we've got to get different filters on. And we get to trust that he, he's taken our past and he works it together for good. And we get to trust that, that everything that God shows us and reveals is, is this loving, passionate father, much like a husband or wife or friend would say, honey, your zipper's down. Oh, you're so harsh for me. No, I'm trying to deal with something that could, it's not, is it? No, okay. I'll stay right here. Just stay right here. All right. You know I'm going to eventually look, don't you? All right, so first of all, as I read this thing, I started looking and saying, where is the good news in this passage? Verse 5 says this. He says, he is jealous for me. It says that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. In the Greek, the word means to dote, which means to bestow or express excessive love or fondness, habitually, usually followed by or upon an intense craving possessed to, to possess, either lawfully or wrongfully, to earnestly desire, to greatly long after, to lust. He lusts after us. He put the spirit of God inside of us that cries out, Abba, Father, because he lusts for us, because he longs for us, because he, he dotes us. He yearnestly, passionately wants to be with us. So if these words are being said, it's simply because he's got something else in mind for us. Can you understand that? Because too long, too long we've seen our God as this angry, wrathful, vengeful God who had nothing better to do, that God so loved his laws that he sent his only begotten son that whoever didn't follow him should be smited for all eternity. That was what it was about. This passionate, earning, loving God is speaking through James as he writes this thing and says, listen here, there's an interruption in the text between verse 4 and, between verse four and verse 7. And he's really saying this. You've missed it if you think that going after somewhere else is going to get it for you. Did you forget that this one not only sought you and pursued you and loved you, but he longs jealously for you? He's not this angry God that's going to shoot you in a fit of rage. Although he did swallow up the earth multiple times, he did send a flood because he was tired of it, but it was out of this passionate love of saying, I just long for you. The greatest passage to me in the New Testament is where Jesus, right before he's about to go to Jerusalem, weeps over Jerusalem, revealing the Father, only saying what the Father says, only doing what the Father did, weeps over Jerusalem and says, you, I have sent the prophets, those who have spoke my words. And what did you do? You stoned them and you killed them. I have long to gather you as a hand gathers, check, check this out, but you wouldn't let me. Therefore, verse 5, he's reminding us that this God that we love and we seek and we see, James is saying, he, have you forgotten something? The reason these things aren't being answered and done, you've forgotten something. He yearns jealousy for you. Abraham was, was one of these great pictures to me of this. He, he goes and has his theophany. He has his dinner with, with all these um, angels, that would say, 
who come and they stay and they cook them a feast. And then, then right as they're about to leave, he goes and says, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I've got to go back and tell this guy this. Did you ever wonder that? Abram was not a seeker of God. God was a seeker of him when he found him. And then he gave him a new name from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai, his wife, to Sarah. He put his covenant in him, and he says, listen, I'm not even going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah without dialoguing with my friend. And we're children of Abraham. We've been grafted in the same vine. And so if he's pointing something out in our life, he's doing it from that yearning jealously for us, not a fit of rage, simply because he loves us and he longs to be with us. That's why he brings the conviction of any area of our life. He simply wants to be with us because he longs, because he loves us. So God doesn't point out sin? Sure he does, for one purpose. Do you know what sin ultimately does? It stops us from going to him. How many people do you know that don't go to church, don't read their Bible, don't pray, don't seek his face after they sin? They do just like Adam did, and they go hide. The cool thing about that story is when we hide, God lovingly sends his spirit and seeks after us and says, hi, remember that walk we were supposed to go on? Remember that thing I was going to bring to you? Here it is. I'm still looking for you. you got, I got sin. Okay, let's take care of the sin. Confess your sin. One to the other that you might be healed, James says. Go to your brothers and confess your sins that there might be a relationship. Peter, deal with things with your wife that your prayers aren't hindered. Go to them, confess your sin, agree with what God so that you'll not only be forgiven of your sins, but cleansed of all unrighteousness. Meaning, once again, sitting at the table, once again, feasting with him, once again, dialogue with this God who passionately loves us. And if you've missed that, you've missed the God of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to die to get us back into the relationship with his father. And all throughout scriptures, you see it. You see it as Jesus goes and explains this in Luke 15 with the story of the lost coins and the lost sheep and the lost sons. We see it even in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel where we see with Mephibosheth and David seeking after pursuing this covenantal son that he had through Jonathan and picks him up when he calls himself a dog and sits him at the table and has Ziba work the field all throughout the scriptures. This passionate, loving God is always there. And James is saying the reason that we have all these problems is because you have forgotten something that the Spirit of God is inside of you to remind us he's passionate about you. So if you're getting a nudge from the Spirit that you don't pray enough, you don't go to church enough, you don't read your Bible enough, somehow it's being filtered through this thing that says, not good enough. And you're missing the God of the gospel who's inviting you, saying, honey, I just want to spend time with you. I just long to be with you. I had to rush out of the door this morning. I had to get down to church, and my grandkids want to spend more time. And when my grandkids aren't there, I mope and I pout, and I really long to be with them. But when they're there, I didn't want to just spend time with them. Last Tuesday or Wednesday, I've been at these meetings through work, and we've been having a spiritual emphasis, which means it's preaching in the morning and preaching at night, and, and they're long in this. And, and I had a, some free time, and I was counseling a, a pastor, and it went a little later, and Kathy said, tomorrow night, let's just go out and have dinner. I'll buy you dinner. So she bought me hot dogs, which, you know, real healthy, good food. But for her, she likes it. And we went down by the river. And I was down there, and I was, I'm just, before I went to Bible school, I was in art school, and so I love creative things, and so I'm looking, and I'm intrigued by design and shapes and colors, and I'm taking pictures, and, and to, to do that, I have to let go of the hand of the one who invited me to spend time. And at some point, she just had enough, and she said, put away the camera. And I was so heaven-bent on capturing the moment of me spending time with her that I forgot I was supposed to spend time with her. And James is reminding us that all these things that we understand in verses 1 to 4 
are a result of us forgetting that we have a God who's on our side. If God be for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son is interceding for us even as we speak today, even as we seek him right today, is drawing and wooing. And so James is passionate because he's seen something different in here. He's passionately yearning for us. Listen to this. It was his passionate yearning, his intense craving, his earnest desire to long after, to possess us, that caused Jesus to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to be buried and resurrected, and now seated in glory, interceding for us, so that we could be legally his possession. That's the word James is using in the Greek there. Jesus Christ yearns jealously. The Amplified Version says this, The Spirit who caused him to dwell in us yearns for us and yearns over us, and he yearns for the Spirit to be welcomed with a jealous love. God is passionate about us, and he's saying, he's, so he's trying to speak about faith, and he's trying to speak about these problems, and he's saying, in essence, all of these things have happened simply because you forgot something. You've forgotten that God's on your side. You've forgotten that God is on your, in your, available and willing and able and seeking you. Secondly, verse 6, he says this. He says, did you think that the scripture said in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. But God gives more grace. Listen, you won't get any freedom by following the rule. Anyone figured that out yet? Just even when you figure out how to do things perfectly, and you, and you, you never do any of the Ten Commandments, I mean, wrong. You've got them all down. Jesus' words hits us, and he says, if you even thought in your heart, you've already done it. Or you're the rich young person, and you do everything right, and you follow the rules from your birth, and, and somehow you've never looked or thought or did anything Jesus' words hits us again and says, okay, good, you lack one thing. Following the rules always ends up short. And then we're judgmental and we're critical and we're so down on ourselves. I think we waste more time in self-deprivation and self-condemnation than anything else. All our words are this way. Am I the only one? The Lord's really speaking to me. One of the messages this week we were looking at was looking at the idea of idolatries and, and the people I deal with have, have a lot in their lives they're dealing with. And I remember just praying that through and said, what are the idols? And, and I started thinking naturally at first. Are you asking me to give up my hockey room, Lord? Is that the idol? Is it my football teams, which all of them are really doing great right now, and it's probably not your teams. Is that, but that's a natural response. What do you want me to give up? And the more I kept praying about it, the more I kept seeking, he says this, listen. And I went back to this verse, this verse 5 and 6, and I thought the, the biggest idol we have in our life is everything we think of who we are. We, have, we spend too much time relying on our own skills instead of realizing that the Spirit of God is in us, yearnously, jealously coming through us, speaking to us and through us. And then second of all, we put too much emphasis on what we've accomplished. And then thirdly, we spend too much time focused on who we're not. We're not good enough. We're not perfect enough. We're not great enough. We don't pray enough. We don't fast enough. How much is enough? Can I tell you? He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness in Christ. Did Jesus Christ die? Yes or no? Then settle it. Then we become the righteousness of Christ. We put on the righteousness. I, Paul says, I'm no longer trying on my own for perfection coming from the law, but I want only that which comes through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is yearning jealously for me. Then I want a response. In verse 6, he says, but God gives more grace. How many need more grace? Not just grace. See, how many need more grace? We all need more grace. Every day we need grace. Every mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
every day. So right in the middle of, the les- of this lesson that James is giving to the church, he stops and he says, but God gives more grace. You don't have to try in your own strength. Shut off that part that thinks you do. The grace of God is there to lead and guide us into truth. The grace of God is there to convict us of sin and of unrighteousness. The grace of God is there to take us to the places that God wants. He lavishly pours out. Why? Because he's jealously passionate for us. He longs to be with us. It's not enough to resist the devil. It's not enough to to resist the things of the devil. We have to draw near to God, James says. We need the grace that God pours out, and we need more grace. Turn to your neighbor and say, more grace. Turn to your other neighbor and say, he's talking to you. But also, he's talking to me. And he lavishes. See, he, when we get this, when we get this, when we understand, then, then verse 7 to 12 makes a whole lot more sense. But when we read this passage, we often read verses 1 to 4, and then we jump to 7 and 12 and miss the fact that he's jealous for us and he's pouring out grace. Grace to do what? Grace to turn from the things that he lists in that passage. See, it's in responding to his grace that in verse 7, when we submit to God, the result is that grace is given to us. When we resist the devil, the result is the devil flees from us. In verse 8, draw near to God, the result is we get closeness with God. When he says to cleanse your hands, the result is purification. How are these bad things? When we purify our heart, the result is we get single-mindedness. When we, when we confess our sin, the result is forgiveness. All these things he's telling us is to get us into this relationship with the Father we long for. So then in verse 9, he says, lament, which means to realize one's own, own misery. The result is we have a knowledge of what we did that was wrong. When he says to mourn, which means to, re- to grieve, the result is we repent of the sin that God has shown us. When he says to weep, which means to wail aloud, we confess our sin. We get revelation in our knowledge. We repent of the knowledge of that sin. We turn another way, and then we confess and we agree with God in that sin. And then he says, turn your laughter in the morning, your joy to, groom, to, uh, to gloom. The result is true humility. We stand there and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. It's all to Jesus. We sing those songs, but we really don't believe it, do we? We still think that somehow God's given us everything we need pertaining to life and holiness and godliness, and that means we don't need him. And God and James is pointing out, saying, did you forget something? Who is he writing this to? It's not non-Christians. It's Christians. It's Christians, he's saying, you start wars, and you lust, and you can't obtain, and you fight. Ireland is the greatest example of this one I can think of. Then, then you just pick on whichever denomination doesn't like the other one. He's writing this to us, not to those God-forsaken pagans out there that don't know right from wrong and up and He's talking to us. He's saying we start wars. Why? Because we don't let the grace of God go deep inside of there. And we never get to the result of true humility. And verse 10 says when we get true humility, we get exalted by the Father. Because he comes along and says, wait a minute, you're not, you're not the tail, you're the head. You're above, not beneath. You're the righteousness of Christ. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're, you're not just an heir. You're joint heir. You're seated in heavenly places. He comes along and lifts us into the place where he is. He reminds us as we grovel on the floor, saying, unworthy, 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 saying, that's my son. That's my daughter. Get up off the floor. Don't treat yourself that way. When we truly humble ourselves, allow the spirit of God to humble ourselves, it always results in us being lifted up higher than we would have ever gone in ourselves. Isn't that not true? 
He always is exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. And to those who love him and are called by him, eye has not seen, ears not heard, and not even entered into hearts the things that God's prepared for those who love him. And when we get to that place of dealing with our stuff, God always lifts us up. Whenever I discipline my kids, I want to make sure. This is as a human. This is as a carnal person, not fully redeemed. I mean, if I died, I was confident I'd go to heaven, but not fully. I still had flesh. I always wanted to make sure that I was lavish with my kids in making sure that we understood that we were on the same page, that anything I did was to correct a behavior, an attitude, something I saw because it was stopping their relationship with me. And anytime God does that, so when we humble ourselves, it always results in exaltation by the Father. In verse 11, it says, don't speak evil. You know what that results in? Unity. The church is united. The workplace is reunited. Your marriage is united. Quit speaking evil. He's not saying it because he's mad. He's not saying it because he's angry at it. He's saying, you want to have unity? Quit talking about each other. He says, don't judge the law. That results in freedom. And we're judgmental of God's laws. Well, I wouldn't do that. He didn't ask you. And I'm glad he didn't. You know why? Because I'd have been harder than he is on us. I'd have been much harder. I'd have been more furious. I would have hit harder. Then he says in verse 12, don't judge one another. We have one lawgiver, Jesus Christ. You know what the result is that? The kingdom of God is finally able to be released in the earth. And what God intended, his wills and his purposes take place. So 7 to 12 is not, not criticism. All of them result in a freedom that we wouldn't have if we don't cooperate with grace. And you say, well, I can't do that. He says he gives more grace. There's something powerful when we realize there's a true freedom when we realize the power of submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not just that he's going to change us and work on us and transform us. There's something of confidence that I have of going into situations knowing that I've got a God who's interceding for me, who's standing for me, who's paid for me, who's there for me, who's going to open up the windows of heaven for me, who's going to not just make sure I have bread for eating but seed for sowing, who's going to provide for everything I need. There's a confidence I have when I'm fully submitted to Jesus Christ. Either God's in control of our lives or else he's not. And if he's not, please tell me who is because I want to follow him. But if God be for us, it says, who could be against us? And if he's for us, then there should be a confidence of knowing that God's got this one. Dad's got this one. You want to you see me get mad against? I used to go from zero to 90 pretty fast. I had a very violent anger and it worked out great in some sports. But I found that it was not very productive as a Christian. Definitely not for pastoring. I probably push people away from churches I pastor doing that. Everybody say amen. No, and, and so one of the things I've discovered there is the, a lot of the anger has to do with our confidence in ourselves. If we bark, if we shout, if we chill, if we change, if we can just get everybody else to do it, we don't look so bad. But the truth of it is this. There's a freedom when we go and we're just submitted to him and say, God, Dad, I need your help. Dad, I need your help. But you want to get me angry, mess with one of my kids. Mess with one of my grandfathers. I become a bear real fast. And I thought, oh, the love that he has lavished on us. What must God do when we talk about ourselves, when we talk about somebody else, when we're critical of his bride, when we're critical of each other? That's not what this is all about. This should be the place where we get wholeness and health and, and happiness. True freedom happens when we submit to God. Our speech is controlled. Personal equality as his children is recognized. We realize that he loves all of us. We're all his kids. And there's room for all of us at the table, and there's plenty of food for us, and there's seconds. I like this one. A pontificating attitude is eliminated. That need for us to elevate us over one or the other. 
one of the grievous things that I've seen in the church since I've been pastoring since the 90s that really has bothered me. It says that, again, I said it earlier, the purpose of the fivefold is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Jesus said, you love the greetings in the squares, and you love wearing finer clothes, you love doing this, you love, and Jesus said, it shouldn't be in there. There should be no pontification of your, of your deed, of your purposes. That's not your role. You're a servant. When, I, when he took a towel and put it on his waist and washed his feet, he said, this is what you're supposed to do. And for some reason, we don't allow the word of God to get in there, and suddenly we, we either elevate people in positions to higher than they should be, or we allow ourselves to be. Jesus said it shouldn't be there. Have nothing to do with that. The Pharisees love that, and you're not a Pharisee, so don't do that. Why do I say that? Because when we allow this to change our hearts, Suddenly you go and you say, I'm a servant of God, and my purpose is to serve you. And what's God got in your heart? And how can I help work myself out of a job and get you to the places that you're supposed to be? There's no pontification of, of our, even in our attitude. A servant's heart is, is developed, and eventually the lordship and the revelation of Jesus Christ is seen. I have spoken to, one time at a philosophy class. I was brought in. They had Druids and Satanists and all these different Wiccans and different week after week, and they were explaining their views, and they asked me to do apologetics, and I'm not really good at apologetics, so I, so I apologized. I did. I came in. I said, I have no Bible. I'm unarmed. I'm here to apologize. They wanted me to do a Christian apologetic, so I apologized for all the bad things we've done to misrepresent Jesus Christ, all the way we've not shown his love, all the way we've done everything opposite of Romans 12, verses uh, 9 through 21, where it talks about the rules, and love must be without hypocrisy, and consider other people better than yourself. I said, I want to apologize for every Christian that's ever done that to, to the audience that was there. And I remember a guy who put this on and said, okay, now I know two genuine Christians in my life. And that's a pretty sad statement for me. But if we allow the lordship of Jesus Christ to, to stop us having wars and stop us having, um, asking for the wrong purposes, and, and we would lament and weep and mourn, and we get to the place and say, cut off the branches, Lord. Do what you got to do in my life that I reflect you better. And we get to the place there. The revelation of Jesus Christ is seen. His lordship on my life and your life is seen. And people say, I want what you got. Let me ask this question. Has anyone ever walked up to you and said, I want what you got? And they weren't talking about your Mercedes or your old junker. I have, and I didn't get it. I said, what are you talking about? And it was one of Kathy's sisters, and she said, I, I want what you two have. And she talked about watching us go through situations and, and having, this is what got my word. She says, you had a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is a non-Christian saying this at that time. And it dawned on me, somehow his lordship was in our lives enough that she said, I watched you go through things, and you had a confidence that God was going to take care of you, and I don't have that. How do I do? And we led her to the Lord, and she's been walking with him ever since. People should be coming up to us. One of the Old Testament scriptures says in the last days that they will grab the hem of the garment of a Jew, and they'll say, take us to your God. They should be doing that in their lives. And what's stopping it? It isn't that God isn't using us. He's already proven he can use a donkey. He, he said, I'll make the rocks and the hills cry out. It isn't that. It's us. It's simply us. Because of what we do, we say to God, you can't use me. Is that not true? I know there's, there's different anointings and callings, and Paul has already addressed that in Corinthians. But it seems to me, in Romans, it seems to me that we stop it simply because we don't do the things that, that James is asking us to do. So what is James asking us to do? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that any man being Christ, a new creation, all things pass away, behold, all things come new. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. But verse 20 and 21, 
It says, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. For he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness in him. James is not mad. James is simply being an ambassador pleading on behalf of the church to come, be reconciled, come back, come to us. It's this passion that we see, this yelling, perceived yelling is really the passion of a, a man who's watching the church go astray and he's calling him back. Paul, when we get to the book of Galatians, you'll see Paul's even more passionate. He uses phrases that we can't even translate today. We don't use them because they're too vulgar. And how passionate he was because they were getting back into rituals and rites that shouldn't be in there. James is passionately saying, this is not the way we're supposed to be living people. And he's calling us as an ambassador, imploring, come be reconciled. Deal with things. Take care of things. So why? So that you don't have to live in the guilt and the shame anymore. Because that's where we end up in. And the condemnation and the judgment. And then worse than that, we criticize and judge one another. And Paul says this shouldn't be in the church. And James says this shouldn't be in the church. James is passionately pleading that we, we might respond to what? The grace of God and the fact that he's jealous for us. This, I love that. I just love that phrase. But he gives more grace. What if I use it up? He gives more grace. I remember talking with a guy I was counseling with him two weeks ago. or Actually, it was last Monday. And he, and, he, and he referred back to a time where he saw God using him. And that God did something for him. And it was something, I remember, it was real and, and, and it showed, showed up. And he said, that, there is a God. And he referred back to that. And here's what he said, in essence. That was my one shot. That was my one, my one moment where God showed up in my life, and I'm just going to kind of hang on that the rest of my life. And I thought, he gives more grace. His mercy is new every morning, according to uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Then, then his grace is more, and it's there. We don't deserve grace. We didn't do anything to earn grace. It's his unmerited favor. That's one definition. I'll give you a different definition for it. I don't consider it unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. But unmerited favor puts the focus on us. And really, the emphasis is on the, is on the act of who he is. And grace is just God's lavish love for us, period. Oh, but I didn't deserve it. Would you shut up? That puts the focus on you. Because then you have to explain to me, what do you mean you don't deserve it? What did you do? Oh, I didn't do it. Oh, man, I'm good. I, I thought about this last week. I don't know why I was thinking about it. Actually, I do. I work in drug and alcohol, so that's probably why I think of it. And I was thinking about this. I had a rule when I was doing drugs and alcohol. I'd never drive open bottle or a glass. I had buddies that did, and I asked them to get out of my car because that was wrong. So I would stand outside the bar, stand outside the car, drink as much as I could, set it down and get in the car, and I felt self-righteous that I never drove open bottle. So when I hear these guys getting charges for driving open bottle, my self-righteous finger comes out and I say, I was never as bad as they were. When we put the focus on what he's done and his lavish grace, period, there's no explanation. Because how many here figured out that 1 Corinthians 10 is 2? There's no temptation except that which is common. You figure that out. We all get messed up. At Galatians 6, 2, he says, when you see your brother in sin, go to him knowing this, knowing that you too could also be in that same position. Put the focus back on what he's done. Put the focus on how good he is. Put the focus back on how lovely he is, how perfect he is, how wonderful he is. When we get in that frame of mind, when all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes and shows us that we're talking wrong, acting wrong, doing something wrong, our natural heart is saying, I don't want to do anything to mess up your reputation. I'm an ambassador for you, and I don't want to do anything that stops the tinting of my life in the exaltation of who you are. I want that. And so that's what James is pleading with us here, is to get stuff right. James 4 is really an exhortation to respond to the grace of God, that we might confess, confess our sins, that we might be forgiven. And when the forgiveness comes, God says, good, now we got that out of the way. 
You say, well, isn't that simple? Yeah, it is. He says he throws our sins in the sea of forgetfulness and never remembers them no more. He blots out the transgressions of the handwriting against us and remembers them no more. He says he removes them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. Some of you are still hung up in this walk with the Lord simply because you keep reminding yourself and everybody else what you did in the past and what you did even on the way to church. Confess your sins. That just means agree with God. God, I agree with you. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been in disunity. I shouldn't have been, I should purify my heart. Anyone figured out we can't do this stuff in 7 to 12? How do you purify your heart? Please explain that to me. We need his grace. Here I am, God. You just, you just do whatever you need to do. i got to trust, as Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of what? That he who began a good work is going to complete it, that he's the author and the finish. That's why I'm no longer trying for perfection coming from the law. can't be just a motto on our wall. It has to be in our hearts. And that's it. I quit. I surrender. That's why we sing songs about surrender. It's not because we did something wrong and, and we're supposed to assume the position and cuffs are going to be on there. It's a freely saying, I, I, God, I, I quit. I quit, Dad. You work it in my life. Do we cooperate with him? Sure we do. He tells you not to go down a certain street or go to a certain place or buy a certain thing. Then obey the Spirit of God. There, there's a part we do. It's not a robot where he sends us in and just kind of, and now we're fixed. We cooperate with what the Spirit of God, God is doing. Paul wrote in Romans 5 a lot on this. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abound, grace abounded much more, so that sin reigned in death, even so grace reigned through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he continues his thought in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in any longer? He's saying, when we find ourselves in a position where there's so much sin, you need to know this, where the sin is great, God's grace is even greater. And, and, and the rhetorical question back is, so should we sin that there's much more grace? No. If we sin more, there's going to be more grace. But he's saying that if it's really, this is my theory, if it's really the grace of God, it should cause us to not want to do it. When we know we're free to do it, because Paul says all things are lawful, but not everything's profitable, if it's really the grace of God, it should cause us to say, but I'm not going to do that. Knowing we could do it, it doesn't change eternity. If it's really the grace of God, we won't do that. Catch that? Luther spent a lot of time on this when I, I read about two years ago. I was reading some of his stuff, and it, was it his commentary on Galatians Is that we were looking at, Norm? And it's just, just a squirreliness of saying, Wait, so I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. And God will forgive you. Yes, He will. But the end result is that I don't want to do it. That should be if it's really grace. Because we don't want to do anything that would bring shame to His name. We don't want to drag His name through the mud. We don't want to do anything to ever cause ourselves to walk in the throne room and say, oh, if you only knew. He already knows. So his intercession for us even now is to say he's pleading and calling and asking us to just let it go. There are things you've been hanging on to. There's, there's been immaturity in your life. You're 40-year-old in, in Christ, and you're still not having an effect in the world place that you're in simply because of you, your guilt, your shame, your condemnation. And you say, well, Tom, I don't have any of that stuff. Some of it, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you some of it, but you turn from it. I don't want to get to heaven and find out I blew it. I want to deal with it here now. I don't like when I have to deal with it now. And usually, when I have to deal with it, it's really an inconvenient time because there's usually something else I want to work on. But we have to respond. Paul says in Titus 2, 11 to 14, the grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men, teaching us to deny all ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and glory appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us for every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Worship team, come on up. So where are you at today? Are you overwhelmed? Because as, as the, you go through this list in James 4, you find yourself saying, you're right. I have my own list, and now I just added to a whole bunch more things I'm not doing right. I would challenge you on that and say, you're eating from the wrong tree. Man was told to never eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was told to eat from the tree of life. Jesus said, I've come to bring you life and life in abundance. And many of us as Christians are immature simply because we don't have the abundant life of Jesus Christ in our life, simply because we still live in condemnation. We don't let the conviction of the Holy Spirit allow him to change us. We live in condemnation and shame, and then we judge one another because they're also not doing it. God knows how much we struggle with whatever it is, fill in the blank, and he cares deeply for us. He knows our distractions, and they don't panic him. Even at this moment, he wants to help us. That's what we're here for today. So how do you respond to his invitation? We respond with excuses, saying, my family's always struggled with this. As I look at the list, Tom, there's, there's things in here that's just the way we are. We can't change. We'll never change. We're always, we prayed for it. It's a generational thing. Or you respond and say, Holy Spirit, what is that thing? It's really up to you how we respond. Last night, uh, we're going we're gonna to close with the song. I want to read this again in James with a different lens on this times. But we're going to close with the song, Oh, How He Loves Us from David Crowder, and uh, I was, the song was actually going through my head, and last night, I, I got one of these side swipes, where, you know, it is where, I know, Lynn, you've never done this, but I responded to my flesh, and I remember I was sitting upstairs, and Kathy came up and, you know, tried to bring exhortation and comfort and spoke a word to me, and I found myself kind of pushing away the grace and the mercy of God, and she went a step further, as she was leaving, she kissed me on the cheek, and I thought of the song this morning driving to church, where it says, like a sloppy wet kiss. And I thought, the mercy and grace is here today. His mercy and grace, he gives more grace is here, but we can push it away. I'm not saying you should. He gives us that right. Isn't that great? We have full freedom to say no to him. We're not being forced by God. We're not getting forced. That's why for me, how we respond is going to be an individual thing, but how you respond will affect every single one of us. It'll affect your marriage. It'll affect your home. It'll affect your relationship. It'll affect this church. The greatest success of a church is where individuals come to Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to deal with stuff in my own life and not worry about anybody else, and I'm going to trust him to finish it. Let me read James 4 again. In New King James, he says, Where do wars and fights come from? Don't they come from you desiring pleasure in a war that comes in? You, you lust for what you don't have. You murder your coven you can't obtain, and you fight, and yet you don't have. You do all that work, and you still don't get it. You know why? Because you don't ask me. And, and then when you ask me, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask a mess. You miss it. You're missing. You're not, you're not really asking for my kingdom. You're asking because you're Irish, and you want the Catholics to be killed, or you're Catholic, and you want the Irish. You're missing the point of what and how to pray is what he's saying. Adulterers and adulteresses. He's not accusing us of sexual morality. He's, he's accusing us like he did passionately with Israel and saying, I'm, the, I'm supposed to be your only love. I'm the bridegroom, and you keep running from me. He's saying it for Shock Valley to have us turn and say, how have I been unfaithful to you? How have I rejected your love, O great lover of my soul? He says, adulterers and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's passionately saying when we do this, we push away the very one who we sang about today and who died for us when we do this, when we reject him. James is saying, you want to know why your prayers aren't answered? Because you've pushed away the one who wants to answer your prayers. That's the bad news. The good news is he's still standing here. Still with his arms out, reminding us that he paid the price, interceding for us, it says in Romans 8. And if he's interceding for us, then all hell has already been pushed back, and it can't stop the love and the passion of God. But God gives more grace. Say that with me. But God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Why? Because he gives more grace for us to turn and to stop that self-deification that we do. What do you mean by self-deification? I don't walk around asking people to praise me. We put ourselves in positions to change things we can't change. Instead of saying, I'm going to humble myself and say, Dad, I need you. Whatever you want to do, I just need your help. And I need you to fix it. And I need you to change. And I need you to take care of it. Hardest thing for me as a dad to do is to trust the God of the universe is going to do a better job taking care of my natural children than I ever could. That's self-deification. To think that I would know better than the God of the universe, the one who said, let there be light in your situations, is still saying, let there be light in your situations today and tomorrow. And nothing changed except for his exhortation today is for us just to stop and say, Dad, I want to grow up in all these areas because I want to respond to that lavish love. I want to come in arms broad. I'll say something that may seem a little graphic. The hardest part about being married over 33 years, as I get older, and I don't have the Arnold Schwarzenegger, well, actually, I probably am closer to Arnold Schwarzenegger right now, right? As I don't have what I had before, and I'm not as fast as I was, and not as strong as I am, and Kathy will hold me, and there's a part of me that says, but if you only knew me, we've known each other since 1980. It's like, what do you mean if you only knew each other? If we do the same thing with the lover of our soul. We're afraid he's going to see. We're afraid he's going to hit that one spot of, if I just suck in my gut long enough, nobody will notice that. And he's saying, let it go. I already know that. Ezekiel, this beautiful picture says, I found you, and you were just cast off by your mother, and you're laying in the afterbirth, and you still have the umbilical cord, and I picked you up, and I loved you, and I cleaned you off, and I dressed you, and I put rings on you, and I gave you the bridal adornment, and I loved you, and you went and played the whore. And I said, that's okay, I want you back. He's pleading for us today to come to him. He's calling for us to come to him because his passionate, loving God is full of grace. And any revelation you have in your life today that's wrong, it's simply because he longs to be with you and he's trying to get it out of there. He knows about your words. He knows about your wrinkle. He knows about your scars. He just wants to be with you. And there's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing you to get it. It's simply saying, Daddy, I want you. So then he goes and puts the spirit of his son in us and cries out, Daddy, I want you. Isn't that great? So when all of a sudden we're feeling bad and we're going down the road of life and it doesn't make sense, this spirit comes up and says, Papa, come get your kid. I need help. Nothing moves me quicker than one of my kids calling me and they, they say it this way. Hi, what you doing? Which means drop everything and get over here now. And usually it's not for bad things. It's usually good things. You know what bugs me after this many years is when my kids still ask and saying, can you do something for me? And it's like, didn't you know after this many years they drop everything? Our Heavenly Father, your, your Father in Heaven longs to be with you. He longs for you to resist the devil. But more than that, he longs for you to submit to him and to run to him and to cling to him. 
He is the one that's going to purify your hands and to cleanse your hearts and to take all this unrighteousness. He wants to do it today. He's simply asking you to confess your sins, which means I agree with you. I agree. That's what I did. Not make light of it. Not legalize it. Not demoralize it. Not go and say it. it we used to be concerned about that, but we don't care anymore. If he says in his word, then, Father, here I am. Oh, Father, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Isn't that good news? He will lift you up. He's going to seat you in a place higher than you ever imagined it was. Because when he transforms and removes the shame, there's something that causes you to say, I'm the child of God. I'm, and the wicked one doesn't touch me. And I don't have to put up with this. You say, okay, I got all that, Tom. But the reality of my life is this. When I look at it, it's still just words. When I look at it, and I've tried this. And I've pressed into this. And it's just words. Here's the good news. I'm done he's not so Holy Spirit we just put ourselves in a position that we receive from you right now Holy Spirit I'm asking each one of us how we want to respond because I believe he wants to mature every single one of us at the sound of my voice Holy Spirit I'm asking that you would do what you already said you're going to do we just surrender every situation every area of flaw every area of sin everything we just surrender to you and we trust you that you're going to change us that you're going to transform us that you're going to move us into the place at which eye has never seen and ear has never heard and it hasn't even entered into our hearts. The great things, the wide places that you've got for us. We know there's trouble. We know there's difficulty, but you'll be faithful to get us to the other side, to get us to the place. So, Father, I'm praying that you would now take your word, impart it into good soil. Remove the thorns, remove the worries, remove the cares, remove the thorns, Lord. We want to see 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to move in our lives, that there be a transformation, that much glory be given to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Jesus, thank you that you do passionately pursue us, God. That, Lord, you care so much about our freedom, that you correct us in love, and you provide, God, the lifting up that when we humble ourselves, God, that you lift us up, God. So Lord, this morning we want to respond in whatever area that you are bringing correction, conviction, Father, that you're setting our course straight. Father, we don't want to resist you, but Father, we want to come in humility and say, you're right, Lord. In the deepest places of our hearts, we say, you're right, Lord. Father, thank you that you're committed to lifting us up, God. Jesus. Let's open our hands to receive the benediction this morning. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, 
to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.